Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. How do investors in the UK and the EU prioritize ESG and sustainability issues by comparison with U.S. investors? And what impact are the most popular themes and methodologies for sustainable investing having in those markets on the valuation of global companies with high ESG ratings? Today, I'm speaking with Dewey John, head of UK and Ireland research at Refinitiv Lipper, about how investment fund flows to the most popular methods of sustainable investment in the UK and the EU, including ESG integration, exclusionary screening, and corporate engagement, are being affected by the recent 2022 first quarter decline in ESG fund flows. Hello, Dewey, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. Yes, I'm very glad you could join us today. I've been wanting to have a conversation with uh, someone of your reputation and in your position over in uh, the UK for some time. So until recently, do ESG uptake has gone hand in hand with outperformance of such funds in key areas. And over the past 12 months, that's largely been reversed. Are you seeing or do you expect to see ESG flows impacted seriously as a result of that? Um. <clears throat> It's a very good question. I wish I had a very good answer. Um, I'll, tr- I'll try to give a, a moderately reasonable one, because obviously there are far too many uncertainties around. We don't know what's going to happen with the trajectory of inflation. We don't know what's going to happen with uh, war in the Ukraine and other global certainties. What we do know is we've seen for a long time um, ESG uh, outperformance, particularly in the, but not only in the equity space. Um, now that has been fairly strongly linked with uh, ESG staples, such as uh, well, particularly technology, but it, it's been very much a growth play. Mm-hmm. Although that's not necessarily so, if you look at the big holdings in the big funds, where invested money is going, it's you, you'll often uh, find a, a fund just crammed full of fangs. So obviously, when uh, inflation spikes, um, growthy stocks get hit. You've, we've started to see that long-term ESG outperformance, which ESG proponents have been arguing and pointing out for a long time. It's ironic now that actually that ar- argument seems to be getting some traction, that you can uh, outperform with ESG. You don't have to um, uh, sacrifice material gain to do, uh, to do good. Right at that point that we're seeing that get some real traction, that that's gone. Um, it ain't necessarily so that it has to be that way, which sounds like a badly mangled uh, 1940s jazz number. <laughs> um, yes, we've seen some negative flows just started. We've uh, that actually, I've just been running numbers on the uh, on the UK for April at the moment for the latest fo- fund report um, that hasn't fed through to the UK yet. So the global picture, yeah, investors globally are pulling some money. Um, not the case for the UK, where we're still seeing moderately strong flows into these. I've yet to come across uh, a reporting month, and I've been doing this for nearly two years now, where we've had a negative month on any significant ESG asset. Maybe that it'll feed through. 
What is interesting starting to happen, though, whereas uh, ESG inflows have always been very positive in the in the, the strong growth areas of the market, I've seen um, uh, global equity income funds uh, on the ESG front start to take in some money. So it looks like rather than investors going, uh-uh, it's all fangs, yeah, it's all it, it's all techie stuff, and it's all growth. I'm pulling their money and and going chasing uh, Exxon, BP, and Shell mm. again. They're saying, ah, maybe there's another way of playing this. And uh, ESG equity income has not been on the radar at all. You know, you can drop a couple of bucks down the uh, down the back of the, your sofa, and that's probably what's been going into these funds historically. But na- there's a significant chunk to rival. Um, regular uh, equity global uh, ESG inflows for this month. So that's very interesting. Um, do they, do the, the approach to investing through equity income uh, has been around for a very long time and, and, and typically, uh, as you're suggesting, in times of market volatility, is it's where a lot of money that it traditionally is in long-term growth strategies uh, repositions. So uh, I think what I hear you saying is that there, it looks like some of that at least is starting to happen related to ESG equity income strategies. Now, could you give us an example? I don't need a specific company example, but the exa- an example of the type of company that is an ESG investment choice, but it also generates income through dividends, et cetera. I've just run the numbers. I've not delved into the portfolios at the moment, and I'll try and avoid giving you the long, rambly answer of what I've (laughs) I've just given you. Um, It depends on your ESG screen or what your ESG process is. So it could simply be anything. Okay, it's not not an oil major. Right. It could be a financial. It could be a financial that uh, where the asset manager in question is satisfied they have the due diligence in process that they're not, for instance, financing tar sands mm. or the like. But it really does depend on the nature of the ESG fund. And most ESG funds, as I, I, I think you know, are fairly light green. Yes. In the, the their screens would go on where we're engaging with companies or we have an integrated process where they'll uh, have ESG as part of their due diligence process. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, putting all their money. And in fact, it doesn't at all mean that they're putting all their money into uh, a clean energy transition. Right. Right. So, Although if you, if you think about, sorry, carry on. No, that's. I was just going to say, I, I can think of the uh, of, of several utility companies uh, in 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 the EU and UK as well as in the US. They're, they're they're pretty global companies. That this is part of their transition to a low carbon economy. They are traditional utility companies in many respects, and at the same time, they are transitioning their energy supply and their energy network to incorporate yep. more and more sustainable focus. Exactly. And, and um, if you think about wind power, both onshore and offshore mm-hmm. um, and solar power, they're maturing as industries now. So they, you know, they're making up a, a greater and greater part of the uh, uh, energy supply for certainly developed economies. Uh, I think in the UK, it's about 30%. So companies that are, uh, have a large footprint here will be paying a dividend. Right. Now, is it interesting, uh, 
last week, I believe, there was a report in Bloomberg that said that the state of California in the U.S. had run for part of one day on all renewable energy resources. Uh, now, this is, you know, the, that, we still have a long way to go to, to transition yeah. completely, but I think the, that's part of what we're seeing in the U.S. is the development of that kind of um, uh, infrastructure and grid access and reallocation to for renewables. Yes. Yeah, and uh, that's increasingly the case, and I think we'll start to be less surprised by these sorts of statistics. Um, uh, renewable energy is, I think, for the most part globally now cheaper than carbon-based fuels. The challenge, of course, is uh, is storage still, because you, know, you have renewable power when the sun shines and when the wind blows. When it doesn't, we still have a problem, which is why we celebrate single days. That's correct. <laughs> now, the EU is leading the way in ESG company reporting to regulators with the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, otherwise known as SFDR. Mm. What so far has SFDR gotten right in this process of, of regulatory restructuring, and what will need to be fixed and why? Mm. Um. The fact that it's creating a reporting standard is a huge step forward. I think there are all sorts of problems as SFDR, and we can pick that apart with uh, intense glee. But the real thing is the <laughs> fact that this is now in place uh, where it, it wasn't before is a major step forward. We've got something that we can test. Yes. Yeah. Regulators in the EU are um, kicking the tires on this. There's a lots of feedback um, on it, and this will be improved over time. Um, obviously, I'm based in the UK. Um, Britain is looking at doing uh, carrying out a similar piece of uh, legislation, the SDR. We couldn't afford the F, um, uh, and I think actually, in some respects, that'll be even more problematic because it seems to be wanting to learn some rather odd les lessons with the fund categorization which maybe we can talk about later. The problem I think that we've got with the EU one is twofold in principle. Firstly, not all the bits join together. Data is coming from disparate sources hmm. uh, when corporates report. So if you're, an, if you're an asset manager, there have been lots of complaints that actually we're being asked to report uh, information that doesn't really exist at the moment. All the ducks haven't really been put in a row on that okay. one all the information isn't necessarily coming from, from the same source as i said um and it may be contradictory at times that i think will come out in the wash yeah it would have been great if it had been sorted out uh well in advance because after all the the clock is ticking but nobody's standing still the second problem is more um consumer facing or end investor uh, facing and that's that sfdr is really being misinterpreted because there are uh, three articles of fund article six article eight article nine article six has no esg objective article eight is light green isn't being run with sustainable objectives at its core but takes them into consideration and article nine has a, a sustainable uh, unmeasurable objective. One of the problems with this that's already been flagged up is that there is a piece of legislation coming through in Europe at the moment, I think it comes into effect in August, that says if you are an end investor, you get, and if you say that you want sustainability mm. 
factors taken into consideration, then the distributor, whether that be a financial advisor or you're working directly with the company, can only show you sustainable funds. Now, actually, what that means in practice, or could mean in practical practice, is uh, Article 8 and Article 9. There are about 10 times more assets in Article 8 funds than in Article 9 funds. So the probability is, unless you're paying very close attention, and how many retail investors do actually geek out on the uh, on investment classifications, not many, and you wouldn't want to get stuck in a lift with them. <laughs> <laughs> so they, what they're presented with, they will think this is fine. This is a sustainable f- fund. I'm. Ha- uh, it's great putting my money there because this is going towards uh, whatever my sustainable goals are, clean energy transition, transition, whatever. And actually, they could just be buying a tech fund in effect. So, Dewey, what I, what I hear you saying is that for the end user, the understanding and the matching of objectives uh, across this regulatory process is far from resolved. And um, hopefully it will be successful over the long term, but at least for now, there's still a lot of question marks, right? Yes, yes, exactly that. Um, what there is a worry, and regu- European regulators, uh, I understand, have already flagged this up as an issue, that SFDR should not be used as a marketing tool, but the fear is that that ship has sailed. That's already happening, and it's embedded in the minds of lots of people that these are what these are, that you know, Article 8 is a green fund, when actually really it isn't, right. or isn't necessarily, certainly. Right. Now... I'm going to ask you to to put on your 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 visionary hat for a moment uh, and tell us what kind of impact or effect do you think that what's happening in the, on the in the regulatory environment in the EU and the UK now will transition to the much more active regulatory process with the SEC and the Department of Labor here in the US. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm sure you're more, much more up to speed on what's happening in the in the US than I am. I would hope so anyway. But what I can say, there's an interest that uh, large fund management companies have in some kind of consistency, because obviously the more different regimes there are, the more your regulatory costs go up, the more juggling you've got to do, and nobody wants that. So if you can get alignment, there's a real interest in that. But alongside that, as I said, it's interesting what the UK is doing because the UK is playing, paying very close attention to what's happening with SFDR in the EU, but it's also trying to improve it. And that creates attention. Your improvements aren't necessarily improvements. And even if they are, then you've got a sort of a mismatch. So I think we're going to get an ongoing period of slippage, for want of a better ter- term, where... Um, investors and international um, uh, fund management companies basically play a game of footsie across these uh, regulatory bridges to try and bring things into harmony. You can see where the interest in um, harmonization is. Because, of course, if you're a large company in in the US and you've got assets uh, that you're managing in Europe to any, as as you think of BlackRock, for instance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, it's in your interest to do so, to have everything pulled together. Yes. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I agree with you. And I and I see that happening with asset managers in the U.S. who, as you say, are also have a bit, large book of business in in the EU and the U.K. And they're very concerned about this. And in, in some ways, they're they're slicing and dicing the the different types of ESG 
investment strategies so that they can apply the most uh, effective ones to the community that they're positioning themselves yeah. with as asset managers. And I'm sure that's happening in the EU and the UK as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the real the real difference with the um, uh, with Europe uh, and Asia as well on the one hand mm. um, and the US and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. I know you're interviewing me, but uh, <laughs> is th- th- this game of political um, football? Uh, I don't know if the analogy works um, for American football that's going on in the Senate and, uh, and Congress, right? Um, where you had a situ- situation previously where sustainable goals were not to be taken into account for 401k plans right. at the moment. And certain Republicans are very keen to make sure that that happens again. I don't think there's an equivalent environment to that anywhere in Europe. Certainly that's not the, the, the direction of travel. But if the US, if the Republicans win that battle, mm-hmm. then you have a, a very different playing field. And um, I, as I said, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, are on that. Well, what I've been reading, and again, this is a, a you know me, a many opinions merged together in, in what I'm saying is that by the time the challenges, even if the uh, the makeup of our Congress goes back to a more conservative makeup at the in midterm or in or in 2024, by the time the the challenges that will be in place in the judiciary system in the U.S. work their way all the way potentially to the Supreme Court, it will be too late for uh, the the conservative approach to to DOL, for example, because companies are not going to wait that long to transition their protocols. Uh, They have to stay competitive. And they have to be competitive short-term and long-term. So at any rate, that's, that's the general opinion that I'm following on the, in this process right now. So, Yeah, and ESG factors are increasingly part of that definition of what competitiveness means. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, I, I would like to continue our conversation at some point in the future to, to come back and revisit what we've talked about today. This whole part of the industry is so dynamic now, and it, it changes week to week, much less month to month. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to revisit our conversation maybe six months down the road and see what's changed and, and, and what's happening in the UK and in the EU. I, w- I would dearly love to. It's a very fast-moving uh, situation, so the, the story to tell will probably be very different. It uh, will have evolved a lot in six months' time, and who knows, I might be a lot less waffly. <laughs> well, listen, Dewey John, where can Sustainable Finance podcast listeners learn more about Refinitiv's sustainable investing research and investment process, and how can they contact you about the topics that we've discussed in today's program? Well, I'm. Uh, we have our, all our content is on the Lipper Alpha Insight website. Mm-hmm. You just get Google Lipper Alpha Insight, and that that will pop up. Um, I'm contactable by my email dewi d e w i dot j o h n at lseg lseg who we're owned by uh, London Stock Exchange Group dot com. Great. See, I well, can't even gi- I can't even give you an email without waffling. <laughs> Well, thank you very much again. Dewey John, head of UK and Ireland research at Refinitiv Lipper. And for our listeners, join me again next week for another episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast. I'm Paul Ellis, your host. 